Chapter 2 of the Principles of Economics with Applications to Practical Problems. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Jackson. The Principles of Economics with Applications to Practical Problems by Frank Albert Fetter. Chapter 2 Economic Motives. Section 1. Material Wants, the Primary Economic Motives. Feeling Urges to Economic Actions. 1. A logical explanation of industry must begin with a discussion of the nature of wants, for the purpose of industry is to gratify wants. An economic want may be defined as a feeling of incompleteness, because of the lack of a part of the outer world or of some change in it. Often the question asked when one first sees a moving trolley car or automobile or bicycle is, what makes it go? The first question to ask in the part of the study of economic society here undertaken is, what is its motive force? Without an answer to that question, one cannot hope to understand the ceaseless and varied activities of men occupied in the making of a living. The question merits long and careful study but the general answer is so simple that it seems almost self-evident. The motive force in economics is found in the feelings of men. It is men's desire to make use of men and things about them which calls forth all the manifold phenomena studied in economics. Animal Species Shaped by Their Environment 2. Wants among animals depend on the environment, that is to say, the utmost that creatures of a lower order than man can do is to take things as they find them. The imagination and intelligence of animals are not developed enough to lead them to desire much beyond that which is ordinarily to be obtained, and so the environment shapes and affects the animal. The fish is fitted to live in the water, and thrives there, and we must believe enjoys living there. The horse and the cow like best the food of the fields, and so each species of animal, in order to survive in the severe struggle for existence, has been forced to fit itself to the conditions in which it lives. After the animal has been thus fitted, its desire is for those things normally to be found in its surroundings. So different animals desire or want different things. But always it is the environment that determines the want, and not the want that determines the environment. Simple Wants of Primitive Men 3. In simpler human societies, wants are mostly confined to physical necessities. That is, in the earlier stages of society, man's wants are very much like those of the animals. Man bends his energies to securing the things necessary to survival. He feels the pangs of hunger, and he strives to secure food. He feels the need of companionship, for it is only through association and mutual help that men, so weak as compared with many kinds of animals, are able to resist the enemies which beset them. He needs clothing to protect him against the harsher climates of the lands to which he moves. For the same purpose to protect himself against the cold and rain, he needs a shelter, a cave, a wigwam, or a hut, for a house is but a larger dress. Manifold Wants in Civilized Society 4. In human society, wants develop and transform the world. In the rudest societies of which there is any record, Savages are found with wants developed in a great number of directions, 
beyond the wants of any animals. Man is not a passive victim of circumstances. His wants are not determined solely by his environment. His desires soar beyond the things about him. As men become more the masters of circumstances, their desires anticipate mere physical wants. They seek a more varied food of finer flavor and more delicately prepared. Dress is not limited by physical comfort, for one of the earliest of the aesthetic wants to develop is the love of personal ornament. The rude hut or communal lodge to protect against rain and cold become a home. Out of the earlier rude companionship develop the noblest sentiments of friendship and family life. Seeking to gratify the senses and the love of action, men develop aesthetic tastes, the love of the beautiful in sound, in form, in taste, in color, in motion. And finally, as the imagination and intellect develop, there grow up the various forms of intellectual pleasures, the love of reading, of study, of travel, and of thought. The various wants of man are sometimes classified as necessities, comforts, and luxuries. But all economists take care to emphasize that these terms have only relative meanings, which, in the rapidly changing conditions of modern life, are changing constantly. The comforts of one generation or of one country become the necessities in another, and luxuries, becoming comforts, are looked upon finally as necessities. And as the desires grow, they more and more alter the world. Man has changed the face of the earth. He has affected its climate, its fertility, its beauty, because either for better or for worse, his desires have impressed themselves upon the world about him. Wants must precede wealth. 5. In human society, the growth of wants is necessary to progress. From the earliest times, teachers of morals have argued for simplicity of life and against the development of refinements. We do not now raise the moral question, but there is no doubt that the economic effect of developing wants is in the main to impel to greater effort. They are the mainspring of economic progress. In recent discussion of the control of the tropics, the too great contentedness of tropical peoples has been brought out prominently. Someone has said that if a colony of New England school teachers and Presbyterian deacons should settle in the tropics, their descendants would, in a single generation, be wearing breech clouts and going to cockfights on Sunday. Certain it is that the energy and ambition of the temperate zone are hard to maintain in warmer lands. The Negroes content with hard conditions, so often counted as a virtue, is one of the difficulties in the way of solving the race problem in our South today. Booker T. Washington and others, who are laboring for the elevation of the American Negroes, would try first to make them discontented with the one-room cabins in which hundreds of thousands of families live. If only the desire for a two- or three-room cabin can be aroused, experience shows that family life and industrial qualities may be improved in many other ways. But impossible hopes lessen gratifications. Not only in America, but in most civilized lands today, is seen a rapid growth of wants in the working classes. The incomes and the standard of living have become increasing, but not so fast as have the desires of the working classes. Regret has been expressed by some that the workers of Europe are becoming declassed. 
Increasing wages, it is said, bring not welfare, but unhappiness, to the complaining masses. If discontent with one's lot goes beyond a moderate degree, if it is more than the desire to better one's lot by personal efforts, if it becomes an unhappy longing for the impossible, then indeed it may be a misfortune. But a moderate ambition to better one's condition is the divine discontent, absolutely indispensable if energy and enterprise are to be called into being. Wants grow refined as wealth advances. It is a suggestive fact that civilized man, equipped with all of the inventions and the advantages of science, spends more hours of effort in gaining a livelihood than does the savage with his almost unaided hands. Activity is dependent not on bare physical necessity, but on developed wants, in the economic sense of the term. Such social institutions as property and inheritance owe their origin and their justification to their average effect on the motives to activity. If society is to develop, if progress is to continue, human wants, not of the grosser sort, but ever more refined, must continue to emerge and urge men to action. Section 2. Desires for Non-Material Ends as Secondary Economic Motives the real man in economics. 1. The spiritual nature of man must not be ignored in economic reasoning. There has been much and just criticism of the earlier writers and of their conclusions because so little account was taken by them of any but the motive of self-interest in economic affairs. Generally, it was assumed that men knew their own interest and sought in a very unsympathetic way those things which would gratify their material wants. Thus man in economic reasoning was made an abstraction, differing from real man in his lack of manifold spiritual and social elements. Desires for the non-material may become economic motives. 2. The main classes of non-material wants that are secondarily economic are fear of temporal punishment, sentiments of moral and religious duty, pride, honor, and fear of disgrace, and pleasure in work for itself, for social approval, or for a social result. The first is best illustrated by slavery, where the slave is not impelled to seek wealth for his own welfare, but is driven by punishment to perform the task. The object is to create within the mind of the slave a motive that will take the place of the ordinary economic motive. The feeling of religious or moral duty leads men to act often in direct opposition to the usual economic motive. The taboo is faithfully observed by the members of a savage tribe who suffer as a result of the severest hardships. A religious injunction prevents the use of food that would save from starvation. Pride, either of family or of calling, the soldier's honor leading him to sacrifice not only his future but his life the love of social approval, holding men to the most disagreeable tasks. These illustrate how strongly social sentiments oppose a narrower motive of immediate self-interest as generally thought of. Pleasure in work for work's sake and pride in the result may act as motives quite as strong in some cases as desire for the product that can be used. And even where this does not change the kind of work done, it comes in to influence the interest and earnestness with which the work is performed. 
economists must overlook no influence on value. 3. Whatever motive in man's complex nature makes him desire things more or less becomes for the time and insofar an economic motive. These various social and spiritual motives sometimes work positively in the direction of magnifying man's desire for things, sometimes negatively to diminish it. If we are to understand economic action, we must take men as they are. A religious motive that leads men to refrain from the eating of meat or to eat fish in preference on certain days is a fact which the economist has but to accept, for it is sure to affect the value of meat and fish at that place and time. Moral convictions, whatever be their origin, whether due to the teaching of parents, to unconscious influences, or to native temperament, may be quite as effective as the pangs of hunger in determining what men desire. Therefore, while these various motives are primarily social or moral or religious, they may be said to be secondarily economic motives, and they may become, in certain cases, the most important influences of which the economist must take account. End of Chapter 2 Economic Motives Recording by Richard Jackson